Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, March 31st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's top stories. Nine are killed in a military helicopter crash in Kentucky. Yair Bolsonaro returns to Brazil. Russia detains a Wall Street Journal reporter on espionage charges. The ICJ orders the U.S. to pay compensation for freezing Iranian assets. The EU removes Pakistan from its list of high-risk countries. Evicted Kiev monks refuse to leave their complex. Meta reportedly considers banning political ads in Europe. A Bangladeshi journalist is arrested for reporting on rising food prices. Kentucky and West Virginia move to limit transgender therapies for minors. And Mexico opens a homicide probe into Monday's Migrant Center fire. Nine are dead after two U.S. military helicopters crash in Kentucky. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, The Guardian, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and CNN. On Thursday, U.S. officials announced that nine unnamed Army soldiers based at Fort Campbell in the 101st Airborne Division were killed when two helicopters crashed Wednesday night. Brigadier General John Lubas said there were five and four people in each of the helicopters, which he described as fairly typical. The crash occurred during a routine training mission involving U.S. Army HH-60 Black Hawk helicopters in Trigg County, Kentucky, just 60 miles north of Nashville, Tennessee. According to Lubus, the Army doesn't yet know what caused the crash, and there were no radio signals calling for help before it occurred. The helicopters were equipped with flight recorders that officials hope will shed light on the matter. The two 101st flight crews were flying after dark and using night vision goggles, according to a spokesperson. The helicopters reportedly landed in an open field across from a residential area. During the crash, the weather at Fort Campbell was calm winds, a visibility of 10 miles, and a temperature of 39 degrees. This comes after two Tennessee National Guard pilots were killed when the Black Hawk helicopter crashed in Alabama during a training exercise last month. According to the U.S. Army Combat Readiness Center, there has been an average of five deaths annually in aviation training accidents since 2018. All right. Thanks for those tragic facts, Melissa. Let's start our narrative spins with an establishment critical narrative from CBS News. Most people likely don't know, but since 2010, there have been thousands of military accidents on American soil, several of which were fatal. These occur often due to very avoidable mistakes such as inadequate equipment inspections and poor training and supervision of troops. The families of these soldiers understand the risks their sons and daughters take in combat, but needless deaths while training within American borders are particularly tragic. Here is a pro-establishment narrative from Task and Purpose. Despite periodic news cycles on the matter, military training deaths have always, unfortunately, been an inevitable reality of war preparation. Even as the government spends more on new equipment and training, tragedies do occur in this dangerous field. Working to prevent any death is obviously a continuing goal of the government, but aircraft crashes don't mean the military is ill-equipped or underprepared. I kind of can side with that pro-establishment narrative a little because my father was uh, in the Naval Academy, 
mm-hmm. and uh, several guys in his company uh, were pilots. That would just happen when they were training uh, aircraft carriers, which is a, a difficult skill yeah. to, to manage. If you know you're training and something just is slightly wrong, or you make the wrong decision, there was there was someone in their training program who who lost his life in in that uh, aircraft carrier thing. So yeah, it, do, it does happen. It's it's terrible. Going back to the establishment critical narrative, for whatever reason, logically or illogically, it hits a little harder when it's in training. You know, it's yeah, it's one thing if you're under fire, it's equally tragic, but I don't know, it just it just feels, gosh, like, yeah, you didn't even get out there. Yeah, that's just grief taking hold. Well, in its own way, it's kind of heartening that we're hearing about it because this would be the type of thing you would feel like would be brushed under the rug for for public relations reasons. And uh, it makes me feel a little more like I can trust these numbers that, you know, these aren't that often, even though they do happen. Transparency in a tragedy is better than not. Bolsonaro returns to Brazil. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Reuters, Axios, ABC News, Al Jazeera and BBC News. Former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro on Thursday arrived in Brasilia, ending three months in Orlando, Florida, after being defeated in last year's tense presidential election that tested the stability of the country's democracy. Welcomed back by hundreds of supporters at the airport, Bolsonaro is expected to lead his conservative Liberal Party, or PL, into municipal elections next year, traveling around the country to preach PL's values in preparation for the 2026 elections. Before boarding his flight in Florida, however, he played down his chances of leading the opposition to Luis Inacio Lula da Silva's government, stating the government is an opposition in itself. Bolsonaro, who lost the October 2022 election to Lula by a narrow margin, left Brazil days before he was to hand over power to Lula. On January 8th, some of his supporters stormed government buildings in the capital in protest of the new president. The former leader faces several legal probes, including into his alleged role in encouraging his supporters in the January 8th riots, as well as into his highly controversial claims that Brazil's electronic voting system is liable to fraud. On Wednesday, federal police summoned Bolsonaro to testify on April 5th in the Saudi Jules case, in which he faces allegations of trying to illegally import and keep millions of dollars worth of jewelry given to him and his wife in 2019. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that store. We have a left narrative spin from the Washington Post. Bolsonaro is facing a score of investigations in Brazil, and his return will only cause chaos in an already vulnerable country. With Bolsonaro back at the forefront of the Liberal Party, the far right could be incentivized to take extreme actions, especially if he gets arrested or disqualified from running again for office. Meanwhile, even some of his supporters are skeptical about the defeated leader's ability to make a political comeback. And the right narrative comes from Breitbart. Those who believe Bolsonaro is some evil dictator should think about the fact that his successor, a socialist convicted felon who believes in stripping people of their rights to defend themselves and speak freely, is the one calling for his prosecution. Bolsonaro understands the grievances of patriotic citizens throughout the Americas, which is why the media and his foes have desperately tried to smear him ever since he first took office. They say Bolsonaro was in Orlando. Have you ever seen the grasshoppers in Orlando area in in central Florida? They're huge. It's not it's not like a Galapagos turtle either. It's not like some other species like these 
just like your average, I don't know, maybe it was a cricket, but you know, some grasshopper yeah. looking bug, I remember was the size of the whole palm of my hand. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you start going further south and the bugs just get bigger yeah, and bigger. Yeah, bugs and I, just take over. Yeah. You know, where, do lucky, you, where do you get to the Amazon? Exactly. We're lucky that our earth isn't like a pyramid shape or else the bugs would just conquer the whole bottom part of it if it got any wider than the equator. <laughs> yeah. Although I wouldn't mind it being a little warmer in my area. Yeah, you say that, but you know. But yeah, you don't if have it meant giant. Yeah. Yeah. Grasshoppers are all right. As long as they're not flying cockroaches, that's where I draw the line. How big would a grasshopper have to be for you to be afraid of it? Oh, probably not that big. <laughs> so, like, if there was a grasshopper the size of. So, you're fine with the size of your hand. Like, yeah, what if it was I the size know. of a cat? Oh, that would be too big. I mean, even okay. the size of the hand is a little alarming. It's just, it's not like, uh, it's not like threatening, but it's startling. Right. Right. Because you don't, they, they you just don't jump want so a out of nowhere. That's big enough that if you smash it with your hand, it won't be dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I <laughs> like enjoy having the power in that relationship. You know, the, yes. okay, bugs, you, you do rule the uh, underworld, but if I hit you with my hand, you're dead. Yeah. But uh, if that went away, that would be tough. To I agree with you. If it's bigger than a mouse, uh, yeah. I'm going to send someone else in. Russia detains a Wall Street Journal reporter on espionage charges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, Medusa, The Guardian, and Ukrainska Pravda. Russia's Federal Security Service, the successor agency to the Soviet-era KGB, said on Thursday that it had arrested Evan Gershkovic, a 31-year-old U.S. citizen and Wall Street Journal reporter, on espionage charges. Gershkovic was detained on Wednesday in the Ural Mountains city of Yekaterinburg for allegedly collecting information constituting a state secret about the activities of one of the enterprises of the Russian military-industrial complex. Russia's foreign ministry claims Gershkovic, the first U.S. journalist to be detained on accusations by Moscow of spying since the Cold War, used his journalistic accreditations as a cover for activities that have nothing to do with journalism, on the instructions of the American government. Before his arrest, Gershkovic was reportedly working on a story about the Russian mercenary group Wagner PMC. He also traveled to the city of Nizhny Tagil, where a major Russian defense contractor is located. Prior to joining the Wall Street Journal, he worked in Russia for the Moscow Times and Agents France Press. He has reportedly lived in Moscow for six years, speaks fluent Russian, and is accredited as a journalist with Russia's foreign ministry. Gershkovic, who pleaded not guilty at a closed hearing, is remanded in pretrial custody until May 29th. If convicted, he faces up to 20 years in prison under Russia's criminal code. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have an anti-Russian narrative from The Guardian. Evan Gershkovich is a respected reporter who has worked for a number of reputable institutions. The allegations against him are ridiculous and simply meant to boost Russia's exchange pool of prisoners that it can swap for Russians arrested abroad. Here's the pro-Russia narrative from TASS. The actions of Evan Gershkovic had nothing to do with journalism. Likely acting at the behest of the United States, he was trying to obtain classified information about Russia's military. With a strong case of espionage, he should undoubtedly face a trial and be incarcerated if convicted. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. 
This says that there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to hold the office of President of Russia by October of 2025. Yeah, first uh, first journalist to be detained since the Cold War. So I guess, I mean, there's a possibility that this gentleman is a spy. And there's also a possibility that he's just brave and willing to do like in-person research on a state secret in within Russia, or he was doing some innocuous research and went to the wrong website. That's that's like the worst <laughs> version of it. <laughs> that that would be sad if he just clicked on the on the wrong clickbait. Oops. The ICJ orders the United States to pay compensation for frozen Iranian assets. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Yahoo News, The Times of Israel, Associated Press, Reuters, and Al Jazeera. On Thursday, the International Court of Justice, or ICJ, ordered the U.S. to pay compensation to Iranian companies after ruling that Washington had illegally allowed courts to freeze their assets. The decision is a partial victory for Iran, with compensation to be determined later. However, in a blow for Tehran, the World Court says it did not have jurisdiction over $1.75 billion in frozen assets from Iran's central bank. Iran had asked the court to free up the nearly $2 billion in Iranian central bank assets, which U.S. authorities froze so they could be paid in compensation to victims of a 1983 bombing in Lebanon and other attacks linked to Iran. In a 10 to 5 majority ruling, the ICJ ruled that while some of the U.S.'s actions to seize assets breached the 1955 Treaty of Amity, the Iranian central Markazi Bank doesn't have jurisdiction over the $1.75 billion held in a Citibank account in New York. While the World Court's decisions are binding, it has no way of ensuring they are fulfilled, with both the U.S. and Iran among several countries that have previously dismissed its rulings. The contentious judgment comes amid rising tensions over recent U.S. strikes on Iran-linked groups in Syria and Tehran's nuclear program and its support for Russia. Okay, those were the facts on that story. Here's the first narrative spin, a pro-establishment narrative from the U.S. State Department. The ICJ's ruling, which rejected the majority of Iran's case, is a massive victory for the U.S. and the victims of Tehran's state-sponsored terrorism. Citing the Treaty of Amity, Iran sought to avoid its responsibility toward the families of the U.S. peacekeepers who were killed in the 1983 bombing of the Marine Corps barracks in Beirut, a futile effort thanks to this decision. And the Islamic Republic News Agency gives us the establishment critical narrative. While the ruling allows the U.S. to escape accountability for its illegal seizure of Iran's central bank's assets, in the long run this is a major win for Tehran as it legitimizes its position and fractures the U.S.'s long-held and arrogant notion that it's untouchable. Vindicated by the ICJ's decision, Iranian companies that have been preyed on by Washington are a step closer to justice. Whenever I hear about these, these types of funds being frozen, I'm always surprised that traditional adversarial countries even keep their money in U.S. banks. Yeah, well, I guess you got to, you know, spread your assets around, right? Not all your eggs in one basket. I guess, but I mean, there's got to be a bank of East Iran and a bank of West Iran or something, right? Maybe use those. <laughs> you think they should stay a little more local? Maybe I that would. says something about their own banking. Ding, ding. <gasps> I got it right? <laughs> think, yes, yeah, that's the right answer. That's what I was looking for. I wind. That's what my son says. <laughs> I win. That's funny. That's what a four-year-old says. I that's, wind. That's funny. 
The EU removes Pakistan from a list of high-risk countries. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NDTV, The Express Tribune, GEO, Money Control, and The Diplomat. On Wednesday, the European Union removed Pakistan from its list of high-risk third countries, which have strategic deficiencies in their anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing regime that pose significant threats to the bloc's financial system. The EU's delegation in Pakistan termed it an important positive step for the country, which was included on the list in 2018, placing the country under additional regulatory restrictions. Delisting Pakistan from the EU's updated list would mean the EU country's so-called obligated entities will no longer be required to apply enhanced customer due diligence while conducting legal and financial transactions with individuals and institutions based in Pakistan. In October 2022, the Financial Action Task Force, a global money laundering and terrorist financing watchdog, removed Pakistan from the list of countries under increased monitoring after almost four years. The UK, which added Pakistan to the list of 21 high-risk countries in 2021, followed suit a month later. These developments come as Pakistan faces its worst economic crisis in decades, with retail inflation soaring to 47% and prices of staple food commodities surging, such as wheat flour skyrocketing by 120.66%. Since the Taliban reclaimed power in Afghanistan, Pakistan witnessed a 27% increase in terrorist acts in 2022 compared to 2021. In January 2023, 134 people lost their lives in at least 44 militant attacks across the South Asian nation. All right. Thanks, Melissa. We have a narrative A from Geo News. This decision is a much needed breather for Pakistan as exporters will now face fewer obstacles to trade and Islamabad will be better able to tackle one of its worst ever economic crises. The rupee is depreciating and inflation is rising. But now Pakistan can unlock critical funding from the International Monetary Fund. The South Asian nation can now take necessary measures to end the crisis through sustainable, export-led economic growth. And here's Narrative B from First Post. Removing Pakistan from the list is dangerous, as it could lead to a rise in money laundering and terror financing activities, especially as the country heads into its next general elections later this year. Terrorism was already on the rise, and Islamabad continues to shelter proxy terrorist leaders and allows global terror networks to remain intact. Um, Bill Murray once called Chevy Chase a medium talent, a scathing uh, insult, you know, a uh, very yeah. a, a damning with faint praise. And I feel like that's kind of in the same category as calling someone a, a high risk third country. You know, right. you're not off the list. We're aware of you, but mm, mm. if someone called me a medium town, I'd be flattered. That's the thing. It's a different... <laughs> right. It depends where you are in your career. Yeah, if Bill Murray said, hey, Scott, you're a medium talent. I'd be like, wow, that's yes. the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. After you were like, Bill Murray just spoke to me. Evicted Kiev monks refuse to leave their housing complex. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Kiev Post, Euromaiden Press, Yahoo News, the Eastern Herald, Radio Free Europe, and President Zelensky's official website. Tensions ran high at the Kiev-Perchersk-Lavra complex, 
also known as the Monastery of the Caves, after representatives of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate, or UOCMP, refused to leave the premises despite an eviction order set to go into force on Wednesday. The UOCMP condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and cut ties with the Russian Orthodox Church last May. However, it was later accused of covertly maintaining ties to Moscow, and dozens of its sites were raided by the Security Service of Ukraine, who allegedly discovered propaganda material supporting Russia's invasion. In December, Ukraine's government, which owns the Kyiv Perchersk Lavra, said it would not renew the UOCMP's lease of the site, set to expire on March 30th. On Wednesday, amid rain and snow in Kyiv, hundreds of worshippers arrived at the complex to protest the eviction. Armed police were on hand to conduct searches of cars to ensure none of the site's ancient relics were illegally smuggled away. However, on the same day, the head of the UOCMP, Metropolitan Pavlo, announced that he had initiated a lawsuit with the Commercial Court of Kyiv, stating that he would not vacate the Kyiv Pechersk Lavra until the matter had been dealt with in the courts. The law is on our side, he said, continuing, We will stay in the Lavra until the trial is over. We have a long-term contract that cannot be terminated during wartime. Archpriest Nikita Chekman, a lawyer for the UOCMP, said that a preliminary hearing for the case had been set for April 26th. He said, We pray so that violated rights of the UOC parishioners will be restored and a fair court judgment will be adopted. Meanwhile, Alexei Danilov, Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, said the UOCMP would not be forcibly evicted from the premises, though he said he expects them to leave. If someone thinks that he has the right not to follow the laws of our country, then he is deeply mistaken. The laws of Ukraine must be followed by everyone. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky also addressed the situation in his nightly address on Wednesday, saying that the move to evict the UOCMP was taken to strengthen the spiritual independence of our state, to protect our society from the old and cynical Moscow manipulation of religion. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. We'll start this round of spins with an anti-Russia narrative from Euromaiden Press. Despite claiming to have severed links with the Moscow Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate never officially cut ties with the organization, and Ukraine's security service subsequently found that it was covertly aiding Russia's illegal war aims. The majority of Ukrainians support outlawing the UOCMP. And the pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. While Ukraine's American allies host the Summit for Democracy, Kyiv is carrying out a gross attack on religious rights and freedoms. If the U.S. truly wanted to uphold liberties and democratic rights across the globe, it would not be silent on this grotesque violation. Ukraine is discriminating against religious believers. And there's a nerd narrative here from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 50% chance that martial law will be lifted in at least three quarters of Ukraine by August 30th, 2024. And speaking of damning with faint praise, there's a coin flip that martial law will be lifted in a good portion of our country. Jeez. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Yeah, we'll see. In a report, Meta is considering banning political ads in Europe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, The Irish Times, and TechCrunch. Amid concerns about complying with new EU regulations targeting online campaigns, Meta, Facebook and Instagram's parent company, is reportedly exploring changes to its policies surrounding political advertising for its users in Europe. 
EU policymakers have brought forward rules requiring tech companies to disclose information about political ads, including their cost, who paid for them, and how many users they reached. Meta is reportedly worried about how broad the definition of political ads may be. Though EU institutions appear in a broad consensus on defining political advertising as the promotion of a message by a, quote, political actor or which is liable to influence the outcome of an election. The European Parliament isn't due to establish a final definition until June 5th. Meta and other tech companies such as Twitter have faced criticism for allegedly allowing users to spread misinformation and conspiracy theories after the 2016 U.S. election. The potential company-wide ban on political advertising comes as users are largely uninterested in such content, and revenues generated from political ads are small compared to Meta's wider business. From 2019 to 2020, the company generated under $800 million, which is less than 1% of its total ad revenue. Meanwhile, as Meta faces a nearing compliance deadline for a pair of rulings that saw the company fined around $410 million for allegedly breaching the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, from the EU's privacy enforcement body, the tech giant announced that it had changed the legal basis on how it uses personal data to target advertising in the EU. Narrative A comes from media laws. The issue of social media fake news is not one of a few misinformed citizens expressing their ideas online, but rather of targeted and malicious disinformation for hire, which domestic and foreign actors deliberately pay for to manipulate the national policies of sovereign states. This is why the EU has adopted its new Digital Services Act to demand multinational corporations finally combat the brainwashing attempts by such malevolent actors. And here's Narrative B from National Review. Most European countries have never genuinely valued free speech. Yet Brussels is taking this attitude to a new level by imposing a radical censorship mechanism intended to force social media companies, through the Digital Services Act, among others, to follow an imposed ideological content moderation policy. These laws aren't meant to protect Europeans from so-called dangerous speech, but speech that threatens the ruling class. The mother of all humble brags. Oh, it's no big deal. Just 1% of our ad revenue, 800 mil. No big right. deal. Right. <laughs> and then they went around to say, we were fined $410 million by the yeah. European Union. Yeah, it's a it's a, a rounding error. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, man. So just just so we're clear, if eight hundred million is less than one percent of its total ad revenue, let's just call it one percent. Right. That means one eight billion eighty billion. Is that right? Am I am I doing that math? Am I moving the decimal yeah, decimal place 1%. correctly? That's that should be the story. Forget about this. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook Meta, whose business is supposedly collapsing and not relevant anymore, made $80 billion in ad revenue. Right. Just in ad revenue. Yes. Right. Although I guess that's kind of their main punch, isn't it? I should hope so. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So when you hear the stories about like, uh, oh boy, uh, Zuckerberg wasted uh, $900 million on this metaverse. Like, well, yeah, he did. You know? Yeah. Spends that much in black t-shirts. You know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, he's just playing around with a little chump change. Yeah, it's it's pockets. It's a little wham walking around money. That's what they yeah. used to call it. You know, it's <laughs> no big deal. 
a journalist is arrested over their report on rising food prices in Bangladesh. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, The Guardian, The Committee to Protect Journalists, The Financial Express, Pratham Allo, and Al Jazeera. Bangladesh police on Wednesday detained the journalist, Sam Suzuman Shams, employee at the leading local newspaper Pratham Allo, over allegations he promoted false news that violated the controversial Digital Security Act, or DSA. This comes as his article about rising food prices, which included testimony from ordinary people about their daily experiences and challenges, went viral after it was published last Sunday on the occasion of the country's Independence Day. Shams has been charged with violating five sections of the DSA, including publishing or transmitting defamatory information and content that deteriorates law and order. If found guilty, he could serve a jail term of at least three years. Claiming Prathamalo's report was baseless, false, and motivated, Home Minister Azadazaman Khan Kamal argued that Shams was arrested because an aggrieved person had filed a case with police over the publication. The case was filed on Wednesday at Dhaka's Tegan police station by 36-year-old Saeed Mudgalam Kerbria, the serving general secretary of Jubo League's Dhaka City North Ward 11 unit, who was also formally served as part of the Central Committee of Bangladesh Chhatra League. A second case was filed on Thursday by lawyer Abdul Malek against Shams, editor Mwatua Rahman, an assistant cameraman, and others who were not identified. The Center for Governance Studies reports that from January 2019 to August of 2022, 138 cases were filed against journalists under the DSA, accusing 208 people of breaking the law and leading to the arrest of 84. Those found guilty of breaking DSA guidelines can face prison sentences of up to 14 years. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins. We'll begin with a narrative A, written by Pratham Allo. The DSA has become a major threat to freedom of the press in Bangladesh, especially in the run-up to the next elections, as it has expanded the government's power over independent journalists and intentionally created loopholes for its misapplications. Shams is just the latest to be detained under this law, but unless the nation protests together to abolish or at the very least rectify the act, he will not be the last. And Narrative B comes from the National News Agency of Bangladesh. Those claiming that the DSA has been created to curb freedom of the press are completely misrepresenting the legislation. The DSA imposes laws necessary to ensure that law enforcement agencies can stay ahead of criminal activity and irresponsible publishing, as evident in the arrest of Shams for spreading false and threatening information. So is there a food shortage or not? They're saying they're mad that he's spreading false stuff and but I never heard if it I never heard any justification for it being false or not right it did say in there like there is a food shortage and he's being yeah. jailed unfairly I mean and I guess also here in the United States at the beginning of uh, in 2020 we had the toilet paper shortage that was mainly a product of people saying there was a toilet paper shortage so that people bought more toilet paper and then created a shortage Right. And so maybe hoarded. that's what they're worried about. If, if you, you know, kind of like Henry Ford says, if you think you have a food shortage or you don't think you have a food shortage, you're right. 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 Whatever you think is, yeah, is powerful. And uh, people as a whole tend to panic with those sorts of things. Yeah, we do. Sorry about that. 
Kentucky and West Virginia move to limit transgender therapies for minors. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, Fox News, PBS NewsHour, Mountain State Spotlight, and CBS. Kentucky and West Virginia have advanced laws to limit access to gender reassignment therapies for children. The legislations increase the total number of states attempting to restrict such treatments to 11. On Wednesday, Republican lawmakers in both chambers of the Kentucky legislature voted to override a veto by Democratic Governor Andy Beshear, voting 29 to 9 in the state Senate and 76 to 23 in the House. During the session, 19 individuals were arrested for trespassing following protests against the measures. On the same day, legislation in West Virginia was signed into law by Republican Governor Jim Justice. The law, which is set to come into effect in January 2024, bans health care providers from prescribing hormone therapy and puberty blockers to anyone under 18. It also bans minors from receiving gender reassignment surgery, though physicians have argued this doesn't currently occur in the state. However, the bill in West Virginia underwent a late amendment permitting the prescription of puberty blockers and hormones for adolescents diagnosed with severe gender dysphoria by two separate physicians. In 2017, a study by UCLA Law's The Williams Institute estimated that West Virginia had the highest per capita rate of transgender youth in the country. All right, thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a left narrative from the Los Angeles Times. The consequences of the current opposition to gender-affirming care reach far beyond the transgender community. Access to hormones and surgery is a basic medical service that should not be restricted. Aside from the blatant discrimination motivating the legislation in West Virginia and Kentucky, the bills may impact treatments for menopausal women, restrict access to birth control, and more. No one should have to live with such a violation of privacy and to bodily autonomy. And where there's a left, there's a right narrative. This comes from the New York Post. The trans movement has inspired a blind religious following, with Biden trying his best to act as priest and pastor. The left continues to use rhetoric around autonomy and liberties, when in actuality, pushing irreversible trans treatments for children is detrimental not only to them, but to wider American society. More than half of Americans support a ban on transgender surgeries or hormone blockers for minors. Despite this, the left continues to turn the issue into a moral fault line against which it deigns to judge anyone and everyone. Our final story, Mexico opens a homicide probe into the migrant center fire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC News, Fox News, and Al Jazeera. On Wednesday, Mexican authorities announced a probe into the deadly blaze at a migrant detention center in Ciudad Juarez earlier this week as public servants and private security guards allegedly took no action to help detainees escape. This comes after a surveillance video, authenticated by Interior Minister Adan Augusto Lopez, emerged, showing migrants trapped in locked cells, while two guards appeared to make no attempt to release them as smoke filled the area. Prosecutors have identified nine suspects responsible for the deaths at the Juarez Migrant Center, with four arrest warrants expected to be issued on Thursday. One of them is reportedly for a migrant suspected of starting the fire. 
Mexico's President Andrés Manuel López Obrador claimed Tuesday that detainees had started the fire in protest over the expected deportations, further stating that those responsible for this tragedy would be punished in conformity with the law. According to the National Migration Institute, or IMN, Nearly 40 people died on Monday after a blaze broke out at a migrant processing center where 48 men from Central and South America, most from Venezuela, were staying. Several others were reportedly taken to the hospital with critical injuries. The incident, one of the deadliest migrant tragedies in years, comes as the U.S. and Mexico struggle to deal with record levels of border crossings. Earlier this month, hundreds of migrants tried to force their way across an international bridge connecting Ciudad Juarez and El Paso. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on our final story today. Narrative A is provided by Fox News. This appalling tragedy in Ciudad Juarez is just the latest in Mexico's long record of human rights abuses against migrants, who are commonly treated as criminals under the country's immigration policy. As there is plenty of evidence that Mexican officials have fallen short of their duty of care toward detainees by purposefully not helping them, this incident is an evident homicide case. And narrative B comes from reason. Though the blame game surrounding this fire has put irregular migration and the behavior of both migrants and Mexican officials in the spotlight, it still misses an important factor contributing to this tragedy. While not causing these deaths alone, American border policies have aggravated long-standing problems by restraining legal entry and failing to discourage migrants from attempting to enter the U.S. And we've got a final nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 50% chance that the order providing for Title 42 expulsions will no longer be in effect in the U.S. by June of 2023. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, March 31st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.